Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 61 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. This week on the podcast, we present an interview with author and West Virginia Writers member Jamie Gordon, as conducted at the West Virginia Book Festival just one month ago. Jamie Gordon was a guest author at the festival who was there to meet with fans as well as to present the Settle Session, which is named after the grand dam of West Virginia literature, Mary Lee Settle. Jamie Gordon graduated from Antioch College in 1965 and received her Doctor of Arts from Brown University in 1975. She's lived in Southern California and West Virginia and was a writer-in-residence with the Rhode Island Council on the Arts from 1975 through 1977. She's taught at Brown University, Roger Williams College, and Eastern Washington State College. She currently teaches at Western Michigan University, but regards West Virginia as her home. Her books include Boogie Woman, She Drove Without Stopping, and Champ of the City Solo. Her most recent novel, though, Lord of Misrule, was the winner of the National Book Award in 2010. It's a novel set in West Virginia amidst the world of horse racing. The person you will hear interviewing Jamie Gordon is longtime West Virginia Writers member Dr. Edwina Pendarvis. Dr. Pendarvis writes poetry and nonfiction and currently serves as the book review editor for Now and Then, the Appalachian Magazine. She's also associate editor for the Journal of Appalachian Studies. Her work appears in these and other journals, such as Appalachian Heritage, Appalachian Journal, Cafe Review, and Indiana Review. She's co-authored several books in education, including The Abilities of Gifted Children and Out of Their Minds, Anti-Intellectualism and Talent, Development in U.S. Schools. Her biographies of four Nobel laureates in literature were published in dual-language editions, English and Chinese. Her family memoir about life in eastern Kentucky, Rafts, Tide, and Railroad, How We Lived and Died, was published by Blair Mountain Press, as was her poetry collection, Like the Mountains of China. We've previously featured Dr. Pendarvis as one of the readers in our Seeking the Swan recorded live reading for episode 39. Before we begin the interview, I'd like to say a big thanks to Phyllis Wilson-Moore for making the arrangements for the interview and inviting me to come and record this for the podcast. She's definitely one of the executive producers for this particular episode. It was recorded in the lobby of the Holiday Inn in Charleston, adjacent to the book festival itself. Jamie Gordon, congratulations on winning the National Book Award for 2010. Your book came out just a couple of days. It was really close. You won the award very soon after your book came out, and it, it was it's really well deserved. I think what an impressive book. It's just wonderful in many ways. One of the ways I think it's wonderful <laughs> is that it's set in West Virginia, and that you really like West Virginia and have lots of connections with the state. So I wonder if you could tell talk a little bit about how you're connected to West Virginia. I'm very happy myself to have written a book set in West Virginia 
so that now my membership here is in some way fully fully qualified. Um, West Virginia is probably the first place that I chose to live after having grown up in Baltimore, um, not um, for any other reason than that I wanted to be in this beautiful part of the country. It was um, a border town, Harpers Ferry, um, on the, at the confluence of the Shenandoah and Potomac rivers. Um, and once I moved there, and um, at that time there included Maryland, West Virginia, and Virginia, since all those three states come together there, um, I looked for work. Um, I worked for the Frederick News Post for a while as a food editor, um, and I soon ran into a horse trainer. I had never had any personal experience of the back stretch before that, but he was very handsome and persuasive and unstable in a way that was hypnotic to me in my early 20s. And, and is he the basis for the character Tommy Definitely. Hansel in the book? Definitely he is. A really fascinating person. I'm yeah. glad you find him right. so. <laughs> uh, I do actually. In lots of ways. I mean, uh, I, I still find him kind of sexy even though I see the dangers now. But, uh, but anyway, um, uh, within 24 hours I was, I was on the back stretch walking his hot horses and learning how to feed horses and muck stalls and so forth. Um, although I continued to keep a regular job until we shipped out of state, um, I did work on the racetrack from then on um, until I went back to graduate school, or until I went to graduate school and went back to school in 1970. So from 1967 till 1970, I lived in West Virginia. Um, my, my post office was Bunker Hill. My town was Midway, and uh, right through the back pasture ran the Opekin Creek. That was the southern border of the property. And I loved it there. Um, I, um, I missed it sorely when I went to graduate school. And when my sister Hillary, a few years later, uh, decided that she wanted to move from Baltimore, where she'd gone to art school, um, to someplace where she could afford um, a farm. Um, I hoped that she would go to West Virginia, and she did, but she couldn't by that time afford anything in the eastern panhandle, so she went to the northern panhandle. So my two long experiences of West Virginia are in the panhandles. Uh, she lives um, not far from New Martinsville. I'd I like to get back to the racetrack just for a minute because your racetrack in the book, in Lord of Misrule, is a fictitious track. But That's you right. said, I believe you worked at the racetrack at Charlestown. That's right. I learned at the Charlestown tracks. There were two at that time, Shenandoah Downs and Charlestown. And um, as I mentioned, we often shipped out to even cheaper tracks. Those were, those were low enough, but there were lower ones yet. And the two around Wheeling were the most notorious, uh, the ones with the cheapest races and the, the lowliest reputations, shall we say. <laughs> All I know about Charlestown is that John Brown was hanged there. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> is, but is that racetrack a half, half mile? It's definitely. But the ones in Wheeling are more like the one in your book. Is it um, a half mile track in Charlestown? The, what, oh, oh yes, but and by now it's actually kind of a glitzy um, track, I'm told, by Westford. Uh, 
Washington, D.C. people have told me I wouldn't recognize it because they legalize slot machines and they have money pouring in. They even have a million dollar race there. Million dollars was just a rumor that anything such like that existed in the world when I worked on those racetracks. But the um, but the wheeling tracks, as I say, were low even to people at Charlestown. And uh, now, why didn't I just use those two real tracks? Because I do mention the Charlestown tracks in the book. I really um, didn't have much personal experience of the West Virginia bull rings, as they were. I mean, of the wheeling uh, bull rings. Um, I went other places. I liked the idea of setting it in Moundsville because I've driven that road up and down the Ohio River hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, it fascinates me that there is a South state prison exactly where I wanted to put my racetrack, so I just evaporated the state prison. But um, and put Indian but Mound Downs. That's there. right, Indian Mound Downs is, is there. And I pay homage, in a way, to the fact that there's a state prison. Why? Well, I think there's a part at the beginning of the book where you mention it. Exactly. A, the pen, sort of the penitentiary as an aside. Can, could, do you think you that could those read who it a little bit Yes, I'd be glad to. Those who recognize um, the, the geography, and a lot of West Virginia people do, might, might see this, this kind of sidewise reference. This is from the point of view of Medicine Ed, a, um, an old-timey uh, African-American groom from South Carolina who's never done anything except uh, work on the racetrack his whole life. Inside the back gate of Indian Mound Downs, a hot walking machine creaked round and round. In the judgment of Medicine Ed, walking a horse himself on the shed roll of Barn Z, the going-nowhere contraption must be the lost soul of this cheap racetrack where he'd been ended up at. It was stuck there in the gate so you couldn't get out. It filled up the whole road between a hill of horse manure against the backside fence, stubbled with pale, dirty straw like a penitentiary haircut, and a long red puddle in the red dirt, a puddle that was almost a pond. Right down to the sewer horses at each point of the silver star, it resembled some woe-begone carnival ride, some skeleton of a two-bit ride dreamed up by a dreamer too tired to dream. There'd been no rain all August, and by now the fresh-worked horses were half lost in the pink cloud of their own shuffling. Red dust from those West Virginia hills rode in their wide-open nostrils and stuck to their squeeze-box lungs. Red dust, working its devilment, he observed to himself but he shut his mouth. They were not his horses. I love the character of Medicine Ed and Two Tie. And one of the things to keep the West Virginia connection going, I love that Pelter, the best horse really, <laughs> was a West Virginia horse and was field bred. You know, you know uh, I made up the names for all the other horses in the book, although they, um, they weren't made up out of nowhere. Um, they had symbolic meanings. Pelter was the real name of my horse, the oh. horse that I worked on that I loved, who was a West Virginia bred, field bred horse. At least that was the legend. And um, you know, I've tried to find, I'm sure if I looked hard enough, if I actually um, looked at archives of newspapers from that era, I could mm -hmm. find some reference. But um, I think it was a kind of a local fame, um, and 
the kind of fame that's, that disappears into oblivion completely after 15, 20 years. But still I love that horse. And, and the description of the horse, everything about him is actual. I wondered because I think I had read somewhere that um, somebody, John Hawks maybe, told you make the horses Real as character. much characters as right. the people. And I really think you do that. They're all fascinating, the, the four main horses and the, and the main characters. Thank you. And Pelter, especially the relationship between Pelter and Maggie. Uh, so are you a horse person? Are you an animal person? <laughs> I'm an animal person, certainly, and uh, I, will, uh, I, I, I would certainly have been drawn to horses at any time that I had an opportunity to make their deeper acquaintance, um, and the racetrack presented that opportunity. But I had already owned um, lots and lots of birds uh, in an episode when I lived in California. Um, I always had dogs. Um, I always had I mean, I've had dogs, birds, horses, and cats all at the same time, living um, fairly communal life together. Um, large animals have something especially poignant about them. Um, they seem, I mean, they're bigger than we are and stronger, but they're also so fragile in some way. And uh, to have seen the, the deaths of racehorses or seen them crippled or um, injured, it's always um, kind of overwhelming experience. And I think the, the way you make them come to life as personalities makes you almost equate the horses and the people. You, don't, you know the horses don't have much control over their fate, and yet you also think, well, the people don't have much control over their fate either. So it's really nice they almost seem on a par the horses and the people, to me, in the book. And I think that's true. Um, not, although there's not a one-to-one -one relation right. between the four major point of views and um, the four, or points of view and the mm -hmm. four horses, still there's a symmetry of a kind. Right, yeah. and you care about all of them, or at least to me yeah. one of the great things about the book is the characters are so sympathetic, the horses and the, and the people in the characters. Do you, do you feel like I love the book. Uh, what do you do? You love anything about what does the book mean to you? Do you feel like you were at the sort of the top of your game when you were writing that toward the end? I know it's gone through some different stages, but how do you feel about the book? I wasn't uh, wasn't sure that I had written my best book when I finished it. I did think that it had more poss more potential for being a popular book or having some popular appeal than anything that I'd written before. Um, why? Well, it's a sports book, for one thing. It has a fairly exciting plot, fairly impressive body count, if you're into that kind <laughs> of thing. And um, I mean, I did feel that I'd set out to do what I'd wanted. I wanted to write now a novel not just about one person, one, one person's consciousness, however intimately Portrayed. I wanted to write a social novel, uh, but I wanted to write a, a about a community that's usually below the horizon of respectable middle class life. It's something that interests me. And um, I think you do it with such res respect. I mean, there's there's no condescension. It's just uh, you really dignify those lives that some people might not see as. Yeah. Having dignity. Well, thank you. 
I would never even have thought of them for a minute as uh, anything but on a par with myself at that. I mean, when I lived, when I was there, I was there. You know, it was my world too. But, um, but, but many people have said, "What was a nice girl like you with a decent education doing working on the racetrack?" I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get there fast enough. It's when, that, when I had the opportunity, it was so exciting, interesting, and different from anything I'd done. And it had the horses, so I couldn't wait. And that, and it had that good-looking guy too. Right, <laughs> that good-looking sort of, sort of crazy guy, but. but. But like it Maggie, really I was intriguing. aware that I was, in some sense, living somebody else's life, that I was borrowing somebody else's Right, you could uh, get out. World. Well, I, that, that, was the, that was the... Maybe Maggie could. That was the thought, that I could get out. But, you know, uh, when I went to graduate school, it was definitely with a sense, the time has come. It's now or never. I've really... You know, things have gotten... A, a, a little out of hand here, and, and <laughs> it's time to go and to do step something back else. on something that wasn't shifting. Yes, I would say so. Well, um, the I book is just full, of, to me, just full of poetry and symbols that are really haunting. It has an exciting plot and fascinating characters and symbols that you go so far beyond just a story. You know, calling one horse Spinoza little Spinoza whose mother is a what, little Dutch girl or something like that right. and then he comes I, from this family of horses that are named for philosophers right, so right. He, he's a speculation um, grandson and uh, in between comes a horse named Platonic right Platonic who is in there, so had right. worked on who was a great horse so you're, you're asking us to think about philosophy and you have Zeno, a character named Zeno, and there are lots of references to philosophy and religion and maybe numerology and the gods, sort of. <laughs> what is your view of human chance, you know, of... Oh, I do understand. No, that's, uh, a, that's a very good question, just as it is. But I'm going to an answer two things. First of all, why do I uh, make so much, so many wholesale references to philosophy um, on a racetrack of all places. <laughs> but I really, I, I do deeply believe that um, most of the people I've found interesting in my life have a cosmology that, and uh, since I'm drawn to people who are of a solitary habit like myself, um, I'm always interested in what is, what's their philosophy of life? What's their philosophy of the world? How do they think what do they think is real? Uh, who do they think is in control? And mm -hmm. um, do they think there's a plan to all this? I really feel that um, um, if we could know their thoughts, or any time I've been privileged to know their actual thoughts, um, I'm impressed at what an interesting philosophy they, they might lay, lay out for you, and how poetic at times. And so I give... Um, I give Medicine Ed credit for having a philosophy of that kind. Um, Maggie often thinks about which, about as much as she can con of the philosophies of the other characters. The dog Elizabeth has a philosophy that uh, Tutai tells us all about. I, they're they're um, side by side, but they don't interlock because they don't discuss them. Mm -hmm. But we have to know their private points of view in most cases to know about them. Now that really interests me. It's my, it's it's the way. It's what I love about humanity in general. So, um, 
So that's part of my view of life. Now, what about chance? Um, Maggie, um, in contrast to the other characters, doesn't really have a coherent philosophy. She says, this one believes this, this one believes this, this one believes this, and I believe in nothing. Mm -hmm. but, I can, but I know how to live other people's lives. Um, on the other hand, um, she is drawn to the racetrack for the same reason I was drawn to the racetrack, that suddenly um, she realizes that it's not really about money, that gambling, wanting to bet, is um, for a lot of people um, a, one way to answer this, uh, this question that they have. Am I special to the gods or not? Do they have anything? I mean, I always felt like I had something special in store for me. Um, and now I'm sure I do. I have the three horse and the five race, and I know I'm going to win. And by God, you do win. You're sure that you are the darling of the gods. And in the eighth race, you bet it on the two, and you lose everything and $50 more besides. And you say, how could I have thought for a minute? I always knew I was cut out. To, I was doomed from the start. And since I'm really given to, the, to that, that kind of thinking, which, uh, uh, which is comical and profound maybe both at the same time. I, I, I wanted to write a book that would situate me in a place that would perfectly illustrate that, that human tendency. I mean, I don't feel alone in that. Um, and, it, and it's in some ways simple-minded, and I say almost comical, but I, but I also think that, that, that for people who, who don't have a deep um, belief structure to support them, they're kind of at the mercy of um, of which kind of luck has um, impressed them most recently, and that's the point that I'm trying and to all, make. Book. And all kind of doomed from the start, in a way. And one of my favorite well, lines that right. Tommy says, again, I think he's such a fascinating character, toward the end of the book, when all these horrible things have happened, he asks Maggie, do you think I could be a dancer? <laughs> <laughs> I love I it. How nice that you like that. <laughs> what did, what were you thinking? What, I mean, what did you have in mind when you have him ask that question? I, I sort of know what it means to me, but as, as the writer of the book, why did you have Tommy ask that question? Well, of course, by that, this time Tommy has, um, has progressed from just tending towards instability to something well over the line, um, and he's having a number of unrealistic thoughts. But could we have a higher uh, ideal for 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 someone who loves bodies, loves motion, loves uh, and uh, and he knows that the racetrack is over for him. Um, that door is closing, whether he likes it or not. Um, and it's just a dream that pops into his mind. Yeah. Now. It's so poignant. I have heard. It's just wonderful. I, I'm so glad that you like it. And well, that was that was one I wasn't really sure about. But good, thank you. Well, I want to ask you a question about dialect because as I was reading it, and West Virginia writers are real aware of dialect right. and the dangers and so on. And I was doing some work lately and came across a phrase I hadn't seen before that said, "Using dialect is a strategy of condescension." And I, I think there are lots of ways that's true. Uh, 
you know, a person who's talking naturally is maybe not even aware they have a dialect. So if you can use a dialect, you're always doing it from a, some distance. And yet, when I read your book, there's nothing that I see that seems condescending, um, especially I think you treat um, medicine ed with, you know, with great sensitivity in the way he talks, as I say, dignified. But what, what are your feelings about what's good and what was bad about using dialect to convey character with these four main voices that we hear in the book? Um, I, by the way, uh, have encountered the, the same argument. Um, um, I've also been told that writers shouldn't attempt to represent anybody from any ethnic group or, or social background other than their own. Um, and I think, first of all, what's the writer's imagination for? I, I mean, wasn't it really our, our obligation from the start to, uh, to um, figure out a world as we understand it and in, in some way depict it in its wholeness. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going, I've, it's been very important to me to live in a world that had people from different educational and uh, um, geographical backgrounds from my own. Um, I grew up in Baltimore, a city that's more than half black. Um, I'm going to just vaporize that whole population. It had a tremendous influence on me as I was growing up. And um, the same thing, uh, I mean, it wasn't uh, particularly a black population once I was in West Virginia, except on the racetrack, where it was very, very important. And uh, my principal teacher was a, was a black groom in every case. Um, and, uh, you know, it would be condescending, I suppose, if I thought that dialect speech was ignorant or funny only. But since I deeply admire it, I mean, it's not, I, I, I wish I could claim it for my own, I suppose, in some way. Right. But it's, but I find such poetry there, such um, um, magic, literally, in some cases. Uh, I would feel bereft if I were uh, not allowed to, to, to make use of it. What's more, in the case of, say, the, um, the African-American grooms who are the principal uh, source of labor on the racetrack when I was working on it, who is going to speak for them? Um, now, it may be true that it would be better if um, one black groom had been a, um, a genius writer and had written the whole thing, but, you know, it didn't happen. And that is a, it's a population that's just about gone now. And one of the main reasons I wanted to write about the racetrack was to represent the um, the, the reality, the poetry, and the pathos of people who uh, work their whole lives without any prospect of, um, of solace in, in, right. in their final no retirement. Years. No. Really, <laughs> there was not, nothing was provided for them, and, and uh, eventually, like Medicine Ed, they would be faced with the problem, what am I going to do if I can't work anymore? So, and I mean, that was more than any other single reason. That was that was why I set out to write the book. So I could hardly do it without making any reference to um, a different um, way of speaking. And and uh, now uh, I know um, people from 
the academic linguistics side of English um, who say who don't who feel that it's usually condescending to write I dialect I E uh, that is E Y E dialect uh-huh. meaning that you have distorted the spelling in all right, kinds of ways and um, I usually agree about that I but I think selecting um, phrases I mean occasionally um, you need to change a spelling just to get um, some amazing formulation um, for preserved, but in general, it's choice of phrase rather than distorting spelling. And you only need to suggest dialect. You don't need to go to the um, the limit of the alphabet to to put it across. I, I think that usually is a mistake. But um, well, yours looks beautiful. I mean, to me, the dialect in your book is beautiful. But I wonder you. what I'm you so thought glad. about the, and it seemed like you thought it was beautiful. I just wonder what it's you thought about the It's entirely, in my case, of a, an act of, of love, really, I would say. Well, um, Silas House, I think, uh, he's a Kentucky writer. I don't know if you've read any of his work, but he, he too stresses that, the beauty of the dialect, but not presenting it graphically, not representing it visually so much. So... So what, tell me again, what, what was something you're really proud of from the book? Something you think, oh yes, I'm glad I wrote that. <laughs> Sometimes I don't like writing, but I'm glad I, I've written. <laughs> so was there anything in Lord of Misrule that you especially thought? Oh, well, even I really like that. <laughs> you know, uh, as, uh, as I've uh, told lots of people, including you earlier today, um, there was a period when I just hated this manuscript because... I was sick and tired of writing about reckless young women since uh, my reckless young women hadn't really panned out for me yet as a, as a fictional exercise. Um, but even when I was the most down on the book because of that, I did love Madison Ed as a character. And I loved all his magic, all his book magic. That was just so much fun to write. It was fun to research. Um, and, there, and there's plenty on... Uh, on um, um, folk magical hoodoo practices in the South um, in a, a collection um, called uh, by, a, by a, a man named Harry Hyatt, I believe. I think Harry Hyatt was probably kind of a racist and um, maybe overstressed the racial aspect, but still he collected five volumes of a thousand pages each mimeographed and they are nothing but transcriptions of talks with people who claimed to be conjurers or uh, root workers or um, practitioners of magic or one kind or another and when one reads them you see that some of the people were certainly um, um, somewhat mad their whole lives they uh, some people who uh, were sure they had second sight from childhood and continued to practice, and they were probably the most convincing in terms of their their belief in magic and their belief in what they have seen, what they are able to do. But there are others who, that, who approach it in a more practical way, and there are recipes, lots and lots of them. Um, you can find out a whole lot about if you want to go into business as a practitioner of magic. You'll find out all you need from those books, <laughs> I guarantee you. And Medicine Head always sees that something bad, it, 
you don't get the good without paying a price. You know, something bad happens to the horses, don't they, every time it well, may that, win. At least to, you know, even even that is not quite not as consistent exactly as he expects it, it to be. Is. Uh, for me, at least, there was always a question whether medicine had had any efficacy at all right. as a magician. Yeah, it's not. But, you know, it's but it's interesting how if you introduce the idea of magic into a work of fiction, most people believe that that magic has efficacy. Most readers, and come to think of it, I do too. That is, I know, I know that if they're that if a sorcerer is at work and either a contemporary work or something ancient, uh -huh. that uh, that that somehow what happens will be linked to the that that practice of magic, and. Um, uh, with Medicinetta, I think the first moment that I really thought I had something was when it came to me. Not only is he going to have this goofer powder that he throws, but he's going to know that every time he uses it, okay, the, at least in his expectation, the horse will win, but win for the last time. Something bad will follow. And uh, that just, I, I just got very excited because then I had that proper mythy, folktale kind of bottom to the story that is what I'm usually looking for before I can get completely excited about a plot. Well, you learned some from grooms. You said African-American grooms that you talked to later, in a later permutation of the book, I think. And it was a short story too, right? A Night's Work and was in... A Night's Work, right. Although a Night's Work, although I'm so um, lazy in some part of me, I fully expected to use a night's work that is to bring the novel around the short story so I wouldn't have to write that 20 pages, but I did. <laughs> I never managed to do it. Um, it just doesn't uh, quite fit in. Um, Kid Stuff, the blacksmith, um, who is important but not one of the point of view characters mm -hmm. in Lord of Misrule, is uh, an important character in the short story. And his girlfriend, Nurse Pigeon, a licensed practical nurse who um, who he has owed lots of money to over the years. And uh, Tutai is very important. Tutai in the story. Shark. In the story, yes. 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 Of uh, the one ca character who's, um, who, who became a point of view character in the novel, um, who I had intact by the time I finished the short story, was Tutai. I love that character. He's so full of guilt and, and tries to take care of things, especially his dog. Now, you write about some of your other books. This one is based on some things that happened to you, and I think some your other books, some of them, you use people from your lives, including yourself. And So one time, I, if I didn't imagine it, I read in an interview with Barbara Kingsolver that she said she never writes about people she's met or bases fiction on people she's met because it's always exploitative. How do you, I know you write about your sister some and or base <laughs> some stories on things, that, at least things that happened to her or, and that happened to you. How do, how do you feel about that remark? Do you think it's always exploitative in some way? Or? Probably, probably. <laughs> and, um, and uh, but I, but I've, I had a very good quotation about that from someone. I can't remember exactly where it was. Basically, like what you know, if you don't, if uh, you don't want somebody um, in your life who's probably going to make use of shared experience, then don't get involved with a writer. Because what else do writers have, really? 
uh, you know, maybe Barbara Kingsolver is is really that virtuous. Maybe she's just discreet, oh, right? Or maybe I'm more discreet than I might be remembering it wrong too. <laughs> I, I, Another thing I, I would like to say that even if I purported to write about real people, um, even if I kidded myself that I was writing about That's real right. people, I think that I, um, it's my, it's my nature uh, to turn my experience into narrative almost before it's happened. That's uh, just how I am, and I've spent a lot more time living my life than some writers. Some writers are at work every day, being writers. Mm -hmm. They're uh, uh, they live more um, quiet and retiring lives than I lived, at least as a young woman. Um, I think I very easily saw myself as um, in a story in some way, and yet um, the characters who are based on a young woman, something like the person I was. That is Maggie in Lord of Misrule, Jane in um, She Drove Without Stopping, um, and um, even to some extent the, uh, the, the protagonist of Boogie Woman, um, who's not exactly the same type, but she's plenty rambunctious and mm -hmm. reckless and so forth. Um, they are always much more simple in a certain way, much more monolithic in their in what they are than any real person. God knows, I uh, you know I could um, I could not I couldn't possibly um, understand myself. I think in such I, I mean my not my real self as anything as. Um, as um, easy to isolate as a single character in a work of fiction, and um, or your sister either, or my sister right. either. No, no, no. The amazing thing about my sister is that she still speaks to me. That I ever borrowed anything from her life, you know. But she's an artist herself, and I think she gets it. Um, that uh, that um, these are always hybrids. Um, they're always. Um, as much a, a product of the imagination that perceives them mm -hmm. as of anything right. that we really are imitating real. from real life. And you said it was a social novel, and it seems like the character of Maggie, especially the, the sexual freedom of the late 60s and early 70s, which is almost forgotten now <laughs> with AIDS funny? and yeah. all the you know, things that have changed and the political climate. And it was really nice to see the sex treated not casually, but that she doesn't feel like she has to marry him, and it just—I think it is very much. It portrays that time and how a college woman, young woman at that time, might have felt gotten involved in casual affairs and things. Some people, I know that would still have offended, you yeah. know, are offended by the sex in the book, but. Let's see. I think that's really an important part of it if it is a social novel that you wanted. Well, I've, I've always been interested in writing about sex one way or another and, uh, um, and say not afraid to go there, even though I know that um, a lot of women writers like to be a little more discreet about the physical act. Mm -hmm. and for some reason, I've never had that inhibition. Um, and I used to my my cheeks flamed a lot more before I won the national book award. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, it really helped to have that um, that.
that endorsement, shall we say. But the sex in Lord of Misrule, as you know, is kind of dark. And kind yeah. of, I mean, there, there definitely is some dominance going on, some, um, um, some sex that, although Maggie is very willing partner in it, um, is um, kind of theatrically sadistic. And I, I saw myself doing that thought, why? Why am I, you know, why should I stress that side or choose that particular expression of sexuality for this book? Um, I had to really think about this um, in hindsight once I had finished it and uh, I, I realized because it's all about, because the racetrack is all about coercion. It's all about tying up. It's all about, I mean, there's never a horse on the racetrack without a, at least a halter. Um, and uh, the basic, the most important tool of control on the racetrack is the shank, just a leather strap with a chain on the end of it. Um, the simplest form of control of a horse happens inside of every stall. There's a, there are tie chains, that is, there are right. chains that come from the... Hold them on. That, exactly, uh, from each cheek piece. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it just seemed natural that... Uh, I mean, and besides the idea of tying, what's, what ties anything to anything else? What binds people to each other? What makes any human connection? Um, is such an important philosophical question in the book. And then it's all happening on a physical level with the horses all the time. With the horses, we see what's tying them up. Chains and, and, chains and reins and bridles and bits and so forth are tying them up. So it kind of seemed natural to move from a world where coercion of the willing, because the wonderful thing about racehorses is, uh, I mean, we have bred them to do very willingly, in the case of any gifted racehorse, what we ask them, what we ask of them, which is to run faster than is really good for them, and to respond to handling that will help them to do that. So in some way, it just seemed like the right. It fit. It does. Yeah. It seems like it really fits. And and yet, even though you feel like Tommy, in a way, she binds him. He binds her more physically, maybe, than sexually. But in a way, sexually, she binds. She has control over him. Of course, he's very vulnerable because of his emotion, you know. Exactly. And that, no, I think that's that, true. But that it's, we, it's sort it, of a nice When he says that it will be all over for him if Maggie leaves him, I think he actually, he, he, he is reading the future. And in a way, they are twins, I think. You know, he talks about twins a lot. Yeah. In a way, it seems like they are. What about, I don't, I don't want to forget to ask you uh, about writers who have influenced you, because I know people are interested in Whose writing do you admire, or who do you read that maybe you get ideas from, or in, are influenced by anybody from childhood on, <laughs> West Virginia or otherwise writers that you like? Of West Virginia writers, well, I do love Jane Ann's work. Um, Jane Ann Phillips. Jane Ann is a um, terrific writer, actually. Um, um, Brees Pancake was a terrific writer in his time. Um, 
I'm sorry, sorry, I'm Lucy just Settle, have you? Oh, of course. You, Let, you've met her. I, I hope know. we get her edit this section. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning of that. Um, well, Mary Lee Settle is a, not only a terrific writer, but she's all about voice. I mean, I, there are any number of things that can be learned from reading, reading Mary Lee Settle, reading her own work, reading what she has to say about her work, and reading what other people um, have to say about her because she was such a, uh, an amazing personality, so sure of herself. Um, and um, I did actually have the wonderful experience of meeting her. Um, I was reading in, I was invited to read at LSU, and I was added late to a program in which she was already reading, and when she heard that, she said um, to my friend, Kate Daniels, who was running the series. Don't make that poor young woman read with me. I'll blow her out of the water. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> I mean, she was... I've uh, never heard her read. Mm -hmm. Oh, she was, she, she was great. She was great. But I think that I surprised her that... In, uh, and I think I read a West Virginia section of, of She Drove Without Stopping, um, which was plenty upfront in the kinds of things that always interested her. So I think uh, that actually it was a good meeting and I was so glad I felt so privileged uh, and uh, for how to handle dialect for how to handle um, historical writing she is she is as good a handbook as you could imagine um, in fact I just read something in an uh, interview um, with the Florida writer Janet Burroway about her lately um, she must have learned this from Mary Lee Settle somewhere along the line uh, because she was really quoting her. She said that Mary Lee Settle um, had the idea that if you were writing about a historical period, you should not take any notes at all when you read um, the big historical texts, the interpretation of that time in the voice of somebody of your time. Uh, just read that to get a general impression, but don't allow yourself to get carried away with um, the note-taking side of research. Hold that for when you read the primary sources from that period. And I completely agree with her about that. That is, it's the, it's the voices of the time, the letters, the, um, the reminiscences, the, um, the, the, the drama, whatever you have to read in order to um, look at the art of the period by people of, the, of that time in their own voices. That is what she. That sounded um, like really of. good advice. Yes, it was. Oh, it's excellent. I wouldn't have thought of that. Uh, well, I, I I can remember actually making the same recommendation to somebody who was writing about the Civil War that um, that the voices didn't sound right, and he really needed to go back. I mean, there are so many volumes in in state historical societies, if not published, of. Um, Correspondence from that right, time of simple and people, just regular people. You can find out how um, how people of whatever um, social status you want to describe actually spoke, and that and you find out not only just how they formed sentences, but how they thought, what they based their opinions on, what they cared about, um, how they cursed. It's so important. I mean, how can you write about characters without knowing how they how they what sorts <laughs> right. of expletives they would use? And what sorts of prayers they would make in, in times of stress. So Yeah, um, I think of that with foreign languages, but I hadn't really applied it as far as research 
for your book, you know, for in this country, history in this country. Well, it's, it's almost like a foreign, you know, like looking at a different language. I also, um, uh, when, a, when I have a, a possibility, by the way, um, now you can't do this with this when you're working on historical fiction, but I, um, I often interview people, um, and I don't say, I'm going to write a book about you. Um, I may not know whether I ever will write anything about them, but if I meet somebody who's really interesting, like my roofer in recent years, who I found out went to jail for not paying any taxes on purpose, right? <laughs> I thought, oh, this guy is really interesting. I would like to know. I mean, I met him, and he's a terrific roofer, but there's something like deeply old-fashioned libertarian about him. I just wanted to understand him better. And, and you, haven't, um, you haven't put it in the story yet. No, I haven't, not. and I may never. But I interviewed him at length, and the amazing thing is that nobody's ever turned me down. I mean, that, that's what I would like people who are other writers um, to get out of this. Um, if you want to know, um, arrange to ask somebody in a respectful way. Uh, I mean, I call it an interview. I say, would you mind if I come over and interview you sometime? Um, I'd love to take you out to dinner, and I'll interview you if that's okay. Um, but most people are very willing to talk. If yeah, you that someone would be interested. And by the way, I don't um, tape and transcribe. I only take notes. You do take notes. I do take notes because I'm all listening for the formulations that really interest mm -hmm. me. That's that. Sometimes I'm only half. It's true. I mean, I've heard some people say, never take notes when interviewing because you won't hear what people are saying. That's true. I often yeah. find out later what they said by reading my notes. But I'm listening for exact turns of phrase. That's what interests me the most. And um, that's what I'm trying to coax out, usually. Well, I do, want, I do want to know, and this is just for my own curiosity, who did you read when you were little? Are you an avid reader? Do you love to read? Oh, yes. Yeah, and who I was did a total you when you were little? <laughs> did you like when you were... So we have lots of West Virginia writers who are interested in children's literature and writing children's books. So I'm curious who who you liked when you were young. Um, we read um, Pinocchio. We read the <laughs> read Jungle the Book. We that read Long Lane. Oh yes, my dad Not read the Disney it version. Us. No, I think it was very important that my I had parents who read to us. Um, they may, may have Even had after you could read, <laughs> after you could read, did they read to you yeah. before you could read or after yeah, you could no, read both, to? Because it's really a different. Some you're, parents you're keep very going right. after the children. You're very read. right, but no, we we de definitely got read to both before and after. Well, I interrupted you. You said Pinocchio, and then um, you said some a couple of other things. We read all the A. Milne books. We I I read every fairy tale that could be taken out of the Enoch Enoch Pratt. Free library. I was just very interested in the fairy tale shape, even as a child. Um, we, I went through a, a, a phase. You know, this is interesting because um, because I was thinking to myself, like, how could I write a sports book? And I w was worried before I wrote the races in um, in Lord of Misrule that I wouldn't know how to go about it. That I. Um, that I was off my home ground or something of the kind. And then all of a sudden I remembered, wait a minute, 
after the um, St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore when I was nine years old, I became a total baseball fan, and I read every baseball book for kids in the Pratt Library. I went through every one so that I finally read Ring Lardner at the age of 11 or 12 just because I was out of children's books. I mean, there were no more ro the rookie from Junction Flats for me to read. You know, I was done with all the... Um, and so, no, I had, in fact, uh, ingested in my early days sports books for kids. Without even that's even, and then I suddenly remembered that. And so didn't, that was you, wasn't your book reviewed in the, wasn't it the Daily Racing Form or something, yes, something like that? Yes, I thought proudly books so, you reviewed what, in that? What happened was that um, Andrew Byers, um, one of the great uh, horse racing writers of our time, and one of the smartest race track thinkers who devised a thing called the buyer speed figure. Um, now uh, in the past performance chart of every horse there is a figure um, that uh, in which all the other statistics about um, how fast the horse runs in workouts, how fast in races of various distances and so forth, all of these are uh, combined by his mathematical formula into a single figure. I don't know if um, you would remember, but there was a lot of talk about the Kentucky Derby this year, that none of those horses could m quite make it to 100, and the uh, the lowest figure in former years of a, of a clear winner, especially one that went on to win another leg of the Triple Crown, was something like 115, you know, I, no, anyway, no, it was much higher. And, um, um, and that was the buyer speed figure that they're talking about, which didn't even exist in my day. Well, one day there was a, uh, a message on my answering machine. Hello, this is Andy Beyer from the Washington Post, and I've read your book, and I'd really like to write a column about it. <laughs> well, okay, you know, I know who you are. Um, and this is when it was a finalist for the National Book Award. Uh -huh. I hadn't won yet. Um, so we talked, and he wrote, that column, and that's what was syndicated to the the, the daily racing yeah, forum. That was really so that, impressive. Well, <laughs> me for me too. That was the high point. Yes, that was probably the best thing that happened. Well, tell. Do you have any advice for writers? Does, well, I know you teach writing, and that people always want to hear from successful writers how they could do better. Do you? You've mentioned several things in the course of our conversation, but just kind of. Uh, you know, I was just reading Mary Lee Settle yesterday, um, what she thought distinguished her as a writer from um, other people of equal talent. And, and um, I agree with her in one of her points. She said talent was, um, was ten for a penny. I mean, talent is cheap. Talent, it's not, it wasn't the, the amount of talent that divided the people who um, were with her when she started out and were still standing when she finally became famous. And I would say the same. Um, but being driven by something that really obsesses you, that's something that really preoccupies you. Uh, I, I have to confess to not being as prolific a writer as some, but I never write a book that I don't feel I have to write for some reason. And once I'm engaged in it, I'm, I think I am um, willing to go to places that make me uncomfortable. Um, yeah, that's the difference between being fat. I think that's a problem with a lot of writers is 
it's facile or they can't or they don't push face some enough. of the things. Right. Yeah. Um, the, there's a, a, a novelist um, who is a close friend of a friend of mine named Craig Nova who um, used to say, if you don't get up from the typewriter with a red face, you probably haven't written anything. And I, uh, I really hold with that. That is, if you're not pushing it far enough so that you, uh, especially if you like to write about intimate matters between men and women, or um, even between men and men or women and women that, that have to do with um, um, dirty secrets like how ambitious people are, how much money they want to have, how far they would go to, to make a dollar or to, uh, or to have power over other people. If you're not willing to look at that up close, then you're probably not going to write anything that's very interesting. Not even your children's literature, probably. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's really true. Long before this interview was recorded, Susan Hayden of the Cultural Center presented Jamie Gordon with an award from the governor for her service toward our state. Once again, many thanks go out to Edwina Pendarvis and Phyllis Wilson-Moore for their work in putting this podcast together. In addition to the audio you just heard, there will soon be a video version of the podcast available via West Virginia Writers' YouTube channel. You can find that channel linked at our podcast website, podcast.wvwriters.org. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast has been a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded in both Kanawha County and Atapa Hill in Mercer County. <laughs> <laughs>